You're listening to the Arctic Circle podcast. In this episode, we listen to Lord Offert of Carval, Parliamentary Undersecretary of State for Scotland, and Nick Bridge, UK Foreign Secretary Special Representative for Climate Change, speak on UK's interests in the Arctic. Following their speeches is a Q&A with the audience. The session is chaired by Oliver Ragnar Grimson, Chairman of the Arctic Circle and former President of Iceland. This event originally took place at the 2022 Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik, Iceland. Prime Minister uh, Jakob's daughter, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to be here today with you at this important event. I'm a Minister of State in the UK Government, uh, representing the Scotland Office. The connections between Scotland and the Arctic can be traced back many centuries. Until the end of the 15th century, Scotland's Orkney and Shetland Islands were actually part of the Norwegian-Danish Kingdom. The Shetland Isles were gifted to Scotland in 1469 as part of a dowry when Princess Margaret of Denmark married James III of Scotland. Even today, many of our town names in the northern parts of Scotland can trace their roots back to their Nordic roots. I'm delighted that our friends from the Orkney Islands government have also joined us here at the Assembly today, and I know that they are keen to engage with you given their deep-rooted Arctic heritage. I'd like to thank the Arctic Circle Secretariat for the excellent organisation of this event today. The UK and Iceland have a strong bilateral relationship on Arctic issues. Our Vision 2030 agreement, signed in 2020, highlights climate change and the Arctic as one of the top priority areas for UK-Iceland collaboration over the next 10 years. The Arctic matters to the United Kingdom. We're not an Arctic state, but as the nearest neighbour to the region, the future of the Arctic is critical for UK interests, most notably in respect of our future climate and security. The UK fully respects the sovereign rights of the eight Arctic states and indigenous peoples of the region, and we are keen to play our part in regional cooperation. Russia's invasion of Ukraine on 24th February fundamentally undermined the peaceful cooperation that had characterised the Arctic Council since its inception. And the UK government strongly supported the decision of the seven other Arctic states to pause their engagement with the Russian chairmanship as a result, pending consideration of how to continue the Council's important work. The UK welcomed their decision in June to implement a limited resumption in their work in the Arctic Council in projects that do not involve the participation of the Russian Federation. We will continue to engage with our Arctic partners and allies to contribute to ongoing critical work to help maintain the Arctic as a place that is safe, secure and peaceful, protecting its environment and the people who live in this region. Later this year, the UK government is planning to publish a renewed Arctic policy framework following our exit from the European Union and the publication of our Integrated Review of Security, Defence, Development and Foreign Policy in 2021. The new policy framework will set out our enduring interest in this region and our commitment to working with our Arctic partners to share expertise for the benefit of all. It will bring together UK foreign security and defence interests with our wider science, environmental, climate and commercial interests in the Arctic, 
while acknowledging rising geostrophic, uh, geostrophic uh, competition and above all the existential threat climate change poses to the Arctic as we know it. The Arctic is warming four times faster than the rest of the planet. I've seen firsthand on my own polar expedition the devastating impact of the Arctic ecosystem and its biodiversity, which requires urgent action to tackle global climate change. While full multilateral cooperation in the Arctic may be paused, we know that the threat of climate change will not go away. And we know that one of the most important things we can do to protect the Arctic is to take action domestically to reduce our own emissions and to show global leadership in encouraging others around the world to join that effort. And that's why we in the UK have been determined to use our COP26 presidency to ensure ambitious action to the Glasgow Climate Pact to reduce emissions and achieve net zero transition that will protect and restore ocean health and resilience, including in the Arctic. The UK will continue to be a leading producer of Arctic science, including contributing to the global understanding of climate change. In 2021, with partners in Canada, we launched the Canada Inuit Nunanga United Kingdom, or CINIC, Arctic Research Programme, providing around £12 million of research funding, including nearly £8 million from the UK, for new projects, uh, such as for, for, for projects between now and 2025 on issues such as climate adaptation and mitigation, the economics of Arctic change, resilience, sustainability, and Inuit community health and well-being. It will deliver Arctic science in genuine co-development and partnership with indigenous communities, putting the needs and skills of the Arctic's indigenous communities front and centre to support Inuit self-determination in research. We look forward to developing this approach across the other areas of Arctic research, and we hope there will be opportunities for similar collaborations in the future. And earlier this summer, we announced that we have secured funding for a new bursary programme to support joint projects between UK and Greenlandic researchers, enabling new collaborations between both research communities across Arctic science disciplines and strengthening our ties with our partners in Greenland. We're proud that the head of the UK NERC Arctic office was elected president of the International Arctic Science Committee earlier this year. We recognise the importance, now more than ever, of ISAAC's role in supporting practical international cooperation and we look forward to hosting the Arctic Science Summit Week in Edinburgh in 2024 with the support of our colleagues in the Scottish Government. So the UK will continue to raise awareness of climate change and take action to tackle its impacts and increase climate resilience in the Arctic. And I'm delighted to be joined today by Nick Bridge, the British Foreign Secretary's Special Representative for Climate Change, who will now provide some reflections on COP26 and the UK's global leadership on this vital issue. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed, uh, Lord Offord and colleagues. Uh, thank you for bearing with us as we uh, work through a very long day. Thank you for your patience and your, your interest. I'm Nick Bridge, as Lord Offord says, the Foreign Secretary's Special Representative for Climate Change. And uh, the UK was the first country um, a couple of decades ago to decide that climate change and uh, environmental issues were fundamental foreign security policy issues and to establish a special representative and a whole network of diplomats around the world, now numbering several hundred, uh, that the UK has working every day to try and tackle these issues. So that work, that work goes on. Um, I thought the most 
useful thing I could perhaps offer just in a few minutes was to report back to you in, in the region that is seeing the impacts most clearly, most urgently, as we've been hearing all day, uh, report back to you around uh, some of the work we've been doing on tackling the causes. And the causes, of course, are happening elsewhere in the world through the emissions of greenhouse gases. And the primary uh, diplomatic mechanism we've been using in recent months, of course, was our presidency of COP26 in Glasgow and the achievement of the Glasgow Climate Pact. Uh, just a, a, a headline thought about, you know, these, these COPs can be very challenging, frustrating, and nobody quite gets as much as they want, and there's always more that we need to do. There's always so much more. But if we look at the challenges in the world and the geopolitics, you know, at Glasgow last year, and what an incredible venue that was to host a COP, um, we got every party to the United Nations Convention, every single party, to agree every single word of a very, very ambitious and significant document and to move forward with climate action. So for those of you who are desperate to see more action from governments around the world, I, I hope that the COP26 did as much as it could. Let me just maybe highlight three big areas of progress that I think make a material difference to our efforts. The first is this whole concept of net zero. Now, when we became COP presidents, or just a, a year before, there was almost nobody in the world with this commitment to stop their contribution to climate change. And by the end of Glasgow, we had 90% of the world economy, the world leaders, signed up to net zero, 90%. So that was a huge political shift, building on the extraordinary Paris Agreement of five years previously. And it was... Uh, detailed in nationally determined contributions, NDCs, by every uh, party to the convention. So every country was saying, we agreed at Paris to tackle this problem, we agreed to end our contribution to climate change, and this is how we're going to do it. Now, the problem coming out of Paris was that those contributions still added up to more than three degrees of warming, utterly catastrophic uh, forecasts. But by the end of Glasgow the increased commitments that we got took us down to, depending how you measure it, just a little over two degrees. Now, that is still too much, but it was a huge shift in the trajectory of global warming. Now, of course, the net zero and the NDC commitments by countries mean nothing if they're not implemented. Real-world change in buildings, in industry, in cars, in trains, in how we travel, We've all flown, many of us have flown here. Can we all commit that that journey and those emissions, the emissions I've just created, am I getting, am I able to say that this journey was worth it? Am I making the connections? Am I making the difference in this visit to this great country to justify the flight? Are all of you justifying your flights? So I think we really have to take this down to the real economy, the real financial system and say, are we making a difference? The second big area was around adaptation and resilience. The impacts are already enormous and growing exponentially in some places. And we managed to have a huge increase in the finance that we put into countries that are suffering the most, the poorest and most vulnerable communities. But there is so much more that needs to be done. So adaptation and resilience has become now, through Glasgow, 
a great big new focus in addition to reducing emissions to dealing with the consequences of the emissions that we haven't managed to curtail. And then the third area that I want to talk about is justice. And we gave new and significant platforms at Glasgow to indigenous peoples to talk about land rights, to talk about how we actually transform, uh, how we steward our oceans and our forests. And to give you an example, on the first day when we had most of the world's leaders at Glasgow, we had to focus on one really big announcement that would really make a difference. And we went for forests that we renewed our commitment to halt and restore uh, the deforestation of the world's forests. And every uh, world leader there signed up to that, that declaration. So there's a huge amount that we need to do now to deliver all those commitments, the net zero commitments, the adaptation resilience and the finance, and then the work so that all peoples uh, feel the justice uh, that we need to achieve out of this agenda. So thank you for your time. I hope that gives you a sense that things are moving. It's not enough, but it's a lot. And we all now need to pull together and turn those political commitments into real economy and real societal change. And the great thing, finally, President, is as an economist, I can tell you, it not only makes environmental sense, it's not only a climate and environmental emergency, but the economics of clean is extraordinarily powerful. Clean wind in the UK is now nine times cheaper than gas. So let's do it and let's press forward. And, and the UK is, is right there in ensuring that, that we can limit these impacts in this region. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, both of you. And thank you for coming here and uh, present uh, uh, the legacy of Glasgow and how it relates to the Arctic and uh, the, the climate diplomacy, which I think actually is an interesting term. I know there are many here in the audience who have spent a lot of time in recent years on the climate issue, so I will open it up straight away to questions. Yes. Uh, James Gray, I'm a British MP. Um, can I just congratulate the UK government on a superb performance last year in COP26? It went extraordinarily well and really very well run, very well organized. However, that was a time of relative prosperity and economic stability, and it was before the big geopolitical shocks of the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. So my question is, how confident are you that COP27 uh, this year will, will maintain that very high standard of COP26? Or what can we do to make sure that countries live up to what they promised last year in Glasgow, given the change that we've seen since then? First. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing I'd just comment on is Russia-Ukraine. For me, what this does, with absolutely no doubt, is just um, present the case to accelerate the clean uh, energy transition to get off Russian oil and gas. But it's part of a wider shift in the energy system. And I just quoted some of the energy pricing. So one thing we can do to drive forward from COP26 to COP27 in this very difficult geopolitical framework is get the business done of transitioning to clean energy faster. I think the other thing about delivery and, and action is my economic point, which is if, if you're a business and you're not accelerating into the clean space, then you're not going to be in business for very long. And I think one thing that COP26 did, and I know COP27 is very keen to follow up, is that we didn't only do net zero in the government, we did net zero for businesses. And that whole momentum now that is building in the business community and in the financial sector, we got $130 trillion 
of assets under management to commit to net zero. So I think that's where I see the momentum is it's now action, implementation, not just by governments, but by businesses. And we are short of where we need to be on the finance and on the political will, but that's there to fight for. Great. So there's a question there at the back in the middle. Yeah, yeah. There, stunt, yeah. No, just a moment, just a moment. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I just wanted to ask you how net zero for the UK makes sense if you're still giving out licensing for new uh, oil explorations in the North Sea. So we have, a, we have a transition. The key word in this is transition. Uh, we need to get there uh, in, in a measured, balanced way. Right now in the UK, we have our energy 75% dependent on hydrocarbon, 25% renewable, and our 2050 net target is to flip that around to 75% renewable, 25% hydrocarbon, but furthermore, make the hydrocarbon completely net zero and make it completely green. And our view, therefore, is that the licenses, which are they're not new licenses, the current licenses are currently on uh, the be being 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 um, uh, uh, put forward, are part of that 25%. Now, if we don't have that in our economy, we'll end up having to then go back to what Europe has been doing right now and import that dirty energy from somewhere else. So it's very important that we have a balanced scorecard. And we have a transition here. The hydrocarbon companies got a role to play because they are the major investors in renewables. They also have the skilled workforce that we're going to use to transition all those skills. When I go out to the wind, floating wind farms off Kincardine and Aberdeenshire, all the skills that are being deployed in making these, these, these green uh, windmills are all coming from the hydrocarbon space. So we're going to transition both people, investment and energy away from hydrocarbon into uh, renewables, but the residual that we have in the residual oil fields will be clean green fields, and we think that's better that we do that than rely on having to import from elsewhere. Okay, uh, here in the middle, yes. You, you. Thank you very much for the answer. Just to follow up on that, my name is Daria Shapovalova. I am uh, with the University of Aberdeen as well. Um, transition is there, and yet in the response to the consultation on a climate compatibility checkpoint, the government is explicitly refusing to put in place any timeline for the phase-out of fossil fuels. The checkpoint has been gutted from six robust tests to three tests, which are basically waved through for the new licenses without any possibility to fail any of these tests and without a requirement to pass these tests, and it's non-statutory. Um, in addition to that, the climate minister is now saying that oil drilling and fracking is actually good for environment. Do you agree that this does seem very contradictory with a leadership that's been established in the field with the COP26? Thank you. There are safeguards that have been put in place, and it's a matter of, of record that these will be independently monitored. It's a matter of record that environmental concerns will be taken into consideration. It's a matter of record that we want to have a balanced scorecard on energy and that we are on, on, on record of going to net zero by 2050. There's no rowing back of any of those commitments whatsoever. And I, I believe that the, our commitments made at COP26 and the, and, and the leadership we showed the world, particularly around this concept of transition, economic transition and just transition, social transition, 
we, I believe, are, are up for our commitments and we will continue to do that. You want to add to that? Yeah, no, thank you for the questions. And just a, a wider context as well, in areas like um, coal, where, you know, the figures where we came out of, what, 40% uh, coal in our mix eight or nine years ago, and that's basically now down to one or two or some days zero percent, 40% to zero percent because of the offshore wind um, uh, uh, in investments that we created. And so across every economy in the world, we have a, a balance of energy, and the trick is to transition it as quickly as possible. But I think we've shown in that space how quickly you can move off uh, a fossil fuel. So i just add that into the context. Well, thank you very much. I think in the interest of time, uh, we have to end it here. Uh, may I just point out to you that uh, it's a good argument for clean energy that uh, Iceland is now the only country in Europe where energy has not increased in price by a single cent. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, yeah, good point. Okay, we have had various representatives of countries, large and small, but now we will have Harvard University, the Kennedy School, coming to the States. And uh, I invite you all then to be ready with your questions. And thank you very much for your presentation.